Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansart, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 58 in which we are interviewing Rima Kadura. Rima is a PhD candidate in epidemiology at the American University of Beirut and she has a background in nursing and population health and of course we are very happy to have somebody joining us from Lebanon today. You're the first guest that we interview from Lebanon. So we are very interested in learning what it's like to do a PhD. And you're uh, uh, also the mother of a three-year-old boy. So we have uh, a a lot of things that we would like to to ask you. But before we get started with more detailed questions, could you tell us a bit about your background and your career path? Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to get the opportunity to share my experience as an academic mom living in Lebanon. Um, so like you said, I'm a PhD candidate in epidemiology at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, degree-wise, I have a BS in nursing and an MS in population health, both from the American University of Beirut. Uh, Career-wise, I've worked as a neuro-ICU RN for three years, and then I joined the Scholars in Health Research Program as the program coordinator since 2014. So basically, I've been at AUB my entire academic and career life, which has Mm -hmm. both its pros and cons. That's that's so interesting to hear. And could you tell us a little bit more about what your research is focusing on uh, in, in your current day to day? OK, so basically my PhD uh, project is on the social environment and the early childhood developmental outcomes of preterm infants. So what we're doing is that we are building a cohort of uh, uh, full term babies and their moms and preterm babies and their moms who are born at UBMC and we're following up uh, from birth up until one year of age. We're looking at the social environment, quality of life, uh, SES determinants, and we're assessing the developmental outcomes of the babies at four to six months and at nine to 12 months. So we just started recruitment in September. So we're pretty much at the beginning still, but we are starting to see some interesting results actually. Hmm. That's great. Shifting topics here a little bit, as I mentioned at the beginning, you are our first guest from Lebanon. So could you tell us a bit more about what it's like to do the PhD in Lebanon? Uh, How many years is the program? Do you take courses or do you teach? And at the end of the line, what is the the doctoral defense like? Okay, so we do take courses the it depends on whether you're a full-time or a part-time phd uh, student so for full-time you have three years to finish you can extend if needed and for a part-time student which i am uh, you have five years to finish and you can extend Uh, my program is 27 credit hours of coursework so we do take courses and then followed by 24 credit hours of thesis work Uh, Once we finish our courses, we uh, sit for a comprehensive exam. 
which basically covers everything that we've learned in our courses. And then we defend our thesis proposal. And at the end of our PhD, we defend our uh, PhD project, which is basically similar to an MS thesis defense, more or less. So overall, it's a bit similar to the American system, I would imagine? Yes, yes. Uh, we are actually, as a university, we are affiliated with a with the, the US, we have a New York office, so we do follow uh, regulations uh, as stated in the US. I see. Hmm. Okay, interesting. That's quite different from my own trajectory where, you know, I, I just started my PhD in October um, and I can take some courses just to develop skills that uh, I don't have right now, but it's not, um, yeah, really a part of the trajectory. I, I start ideally on day one with research. So it's always interesting to hear how different it can be um, across countries. Um, shifting topics again. Uh, so, I mean, of course, uh, in addition to the, the pandemic, which which we've all experienced for the last um, two years. In Lebanon, you've also faced some, some major um, disasters uh, besides the pandemic. And I'm just curious um, how this these events in your country have impacted uh, your research and, and your experience as a PhD student. Yeah, well, funnily enough, the pandemic has been the least of our concerns in Lebanon over the past <laughs> two years. I mean, we went through since October 2019, actually, we went through a revolution in the country, uh, financial collapse. Uh, we had a huge explosion, the August 4 Beirut expo- explosions, which was actually uh, like it was the third most powerful non-nuclear explosion to ever happen. Uh, immigration, uh, the whole country is currently a mess. So just to give you like a sense, so $1 used to be 1,500 Lebanese liras. Now it's at 21,000, and there was a point where it reached reached 35,000. For a couple of months, we had no fuel. You had to queue in line for seven to eight hours to fill up the the car tank. Uh, We currently don't have electricity. We have electricity one hour every, like for each 24 hours, you get it for one hour and you depend on generators, solar panels, etc. And yeah, so it's been quite tough. Uh, it definitely has affected uh, the PhD work, mainly the funds, lack of funds. So whenever you have a project, you need funds, you need to buy material, etc. Uh, this has been tough because what, whenever you need to buy, so we have like, it's funny, we have the term like the fresh US dollar, and there's something called the, local dollar or the luller like we call it so a fresh us <laughs> dollar is something that like we just brought from outside and the local which honestly like value wise it means nothing so you can't actually use it uh, the savings of the lebanese people are all stuck in banks so uh, faculty are leaving uh, we're facing a lack of mentors so in order mm-hmm. to find like a real team mentoring team to guide you it has been tough and commuting from the university it has been tough as well for a lot of people like the the fuel the cost of the fuel to go to commute it equals their salary so they choose to just stay at home and work if possible Hmm. wow and in healthcare then which is i guess sort of the the sector that your research is focused on do you also then see consequences there um because of yeah the events of the last few years 
Definitely, definitely. So mainly, like in, when it relates to my thesis, what we've seen is a huge decline in the number of births at the hospital. And it's due to several mm. reasons. So number one, those who are young uh, are leaving the country. So aged like 20 till 40, they're leaving if they can. Mm. Um, the hospital itself caters to middle to higher economic status. So many people can't afford it anymore. And so like we have the NICU, which used to have 20 beds that were full. Now you have like four to five beds. Sometimes it's empty. So I've been having a tough time uh, with the recruitment process and with actually finding enough uh, participants for my project. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, another topic that we wanted to ask you about is being an academic parent and uh, not just in a global pandemic, but with all the difficulties that you're facing in Lebanon. Could you tell us a bit um, about how old your child is and how you've been combining your academic career with being a parent? So my son is actually as old as my PhD. So I received the acceptance <laughs> this same month in which I knew I was pregnant. Um, and, and so I'd like to think of it as a good sign, hopefully. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, having a support system is huge. So the way like families are built in Lebanon, you always have like your um, parents near you, your extended family near you. So this has been a major thing for me to be able to succeed having them around helping them helping with the daily tasks so like for example i don't have to worry about the cooking i can get it from my mom um, if my son is sick they can like pick him up from nursery i can stay at campus so this has been huge and mostly i schedule all of my phd work post bedtime so that's why we're now talking at uh, 10 p.m <laughs> so yeah uh, and the actual program they have been uh, like very supportive so i remember once where i had nowhere to keep my son i had to bring him to class with me and so the administrator there she like took him took care of him while i attended class so i mean ha having support this is this is huge mm -hmm. and do you find that there are many other academic um, parents or academic moms that you work with in, in Lebanon or do you feel like you're one of the few um, moms who's also completing a PhD? Uh, actually in my program I have two other moms, uh, academic moms with hmm. me. I mean uh, their uh, sons and daughters they're a bit older so they're like teenagers which they say mm. it's easier. I'm not sure. I haven't experienced it yet but the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the um, and in terms of faculty, we have several moms out there. So like having role models or mentors or seeing other super moms, it makes it easier. So you think, okay, I can do this. If other people are doing it, so hopefully I can do it as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then what would be your best um, advice for academic parents? <laughs> uh, take it day by day and don't hmm. let the guilt consume you. So you'll never be able to give 100% to your work or 100% hmm. to parenting. So you need to set your priorities. And so for example, for me, bedtime is non-negotiable. So if there's a meeting that's scheduled around bedtime, I will not take that. And I try to dedicate like at least 
30 minutes of undivided attention and try to, during that time, I'm 100% fully dedicated to parenting, which makes the guilt a bit easier. And if you have a support system available, learn how to ask and accept help. Accept help. You're going to need it. And mm. honestly, wherever you can find any support, lean on it. And don't be afraid to ask for help or for accommodations. Uh, you deserve it. So whatever you, you put in, you deserve it. And again, take it day by day. That's great advice. That's great advice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few questions that we ask all our interviewees. And the, the first one is, what would be your best advice for PhD students? Uh, so I think don't let your work define you. Your work is not who you are. You will have good days. You will have bad days. You will have days where you just can't function. And that's OK. You take a break. Uh, it's something that you're doing. It's not you. And also, try to build yourself a network. So try to find academics who can support you on your journey, family, friends, even if it's virtual. I mean, honestly, when I found academic Twitter, I've, I was so happy with it. Because even though I may not know all of the people out there, just reading some of the tweets, hearing how some people are sharing or experiencing whatever I'm experiencing, this really helps me move on. So build yourself a network. You're, you're going to need it. Mm -hmm. That's great advice, yes. Yeah, that's not something I necessarily expected when I was starting the PhD, but I find now the challenges that you face as a PhD student, it sometimes feels like unless you're also in academia or you've been down this path, it's really hard to understand. And so, um, yeah, as you say, finding that network or that community of people who can really relate to you is been um yeah very helpful for me in the last few months exactly even uh, i feel it's even more important for first generation phd students i mean you can try to explain this to your parents your family but they won't actually get what you're going through the PhD. Yeah. so they're always asking so okay why, why aren't you done with your phd project so you can just <laughs> finish it i mean then you have to explain the whole thing so yeah having a network that understands you helps a lot Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I have a colleague who was telling me that, you know, one of her family members or something was always asking her, so are you a doctor yet? Are you a doctor yet? Are you a doctor yet? And she <laughs> says, well, it takes some time and hard work to get there. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, so, it's true. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely finding people who are, yeah, can understand the struggles is, uh, is definitely important. Um, maybe along the same vein, and I'm really curious actually for you also as, as a mom, um, how you set boundaries to your work. I'm, I'm guilty because of this, and it took me a really long time to have the guts to do it. But honestly, removing the email from your phone, it was a huge game changer, honestly. So I used to be like, I'm at home, I'm playing with my son, etc. So I would get notifications and emails, and I would stress out. And I think, okay, I have to respond to this. I have to respond to this. And what actually triggered this is my son, like, seeing me on my phone when I'm playing with him. And he's just, no, mom, no, no remove the phone. So I, I really felt guilty. And mm -hmm. honestly, with everything that's going on in the country and, like, my priorities have shifted. And, like, 99% of the time, nothing is urgent at work. So don't treat it as such. I know we feel like it's urgent. I have to do it 
right now, but it's okay. It can wait. Give yourself the time you need. You deserve it. And, and when you set those boundaries, you'll be, find that you're becoming more efficient at work, actually. That's great advice. And I, I did remove email from my phone at some point, but it has. <laughs> then it kind of bit by bit came back. Because first I, I had it completely removed when I went on a holiday and then I thought, oh, I should at least activate my personal email because I, I got tickets to go somewhere and I needed to have like the code. And I thought, okay, now I have to you know reactivate my personal email. And then a little bit after that, I was like, oh, but I have to see something of work. And yeah, before you know it, it kind of creeps <laughs> back on you. <laughs> true, true. I've been there. So I like first I started with removing the notification. And then I removed the app and then I would go to the browser to open my email just because I had removed the app. So mm -hmm. it took some yeah. adaptation, but uh, it, it can be done with, with a bit of uh, strength. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will take another attempt at, <laughs> at removing it at some point. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. The other question that we ask all our interviewees is, and you, you already indicated, it's it's not the the, the thing that has had the, the largest impact um, for you, but that's how COVID-19 has changed your job and your daily tasks. So what I feel it has affected the most, it, it's, it diluted the working hours. So mainly when we started working from home, when there was a lockdown, so bit by bit, you were expected to be working 24 7 and to be on call or available all the time and we, when we got back to campus it became a bit harder to set this limit because everyone got used to okay whenever i send an email or i communicate they should be able to answer uh, but in other aspects it has made work a bit easier so like the virtual meetings they're sometimes they're a lifesaver where you can't when you can't be on campus and we i mean i got the opportunity to attend workshops or conferences which previously in the past i would not have been able to attend especially with a toddler so like having the flexibility of attending those from home i think this has actually helped yeah, I certainly recognize that the virtual conferences is something that, especially if you have small children, it's just so much easier to attend a lecture or a meeting and then, in my case, put my daughter to sleep and then maybe watch another lecture rather than to have to travel most of the time internationally and be away from home for three, four, five days and, and have to make sure that everything is arranged at home. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm curious going forward how uh, conferences will, yeah, what, what the structure will be. I know in psychology there was a big, um, a big social psychology conference, I guess, last week, and that was really the first one since, um, since COVID had started. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, it's nice for everyone to be all together, but I also think there were a number of benefits and maybe especially for, for parents and for moms in particular who, who were able to still have those professional opportunities um, that maybe they wouldn't have been able to, to um, yeah, use of if, um, if it weren't for COVID. Um, yeah, so I'm curious true. going forward, how we'll see that. Um, I hope there, there will still be like the option of having like a virtual streaming somehow. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are definitely benefits to the, on-site networking, etc., which 
they're not the same online but having this option especially for working moms this this would be nice to to keep post-covid yeah, hopefully mm-hmm. and i'm yeah. seeing in my field that uh, some conferences that were first fully online then they had the fully in-person version and then you see that at the last minute they tried to add some hybrid solution because still people couldn't make it and then especially things that happened now recently uh, people couldn't travel because of the omicron wave and i i think that moving forward we will have more hybrid solutions hope that we will have more hybrid solutions to conferences Yeah, because, I mean, I think the reality is, is that that uh, flexibility and freedom to travel is not equally available to um, all people. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, having the hybrid option makes it a little bit more um, accessible for, for people just with um, all kinds of restraints, whether they be children or physical or travel restraints, what have you. Um, I think that's exactly. Yeah, there's always silver linings. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Last question for you is uh, what a day in the life looks like for you. Okay, so usually uh, I wake up or even my son wakes me up at like 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m. <laughs> and so I drop him off to nursery. I go to work. I use my lunch break for data collection or data entry. And then I pick him up from the nursery or from my grandparents if I'm late at work. I go home, like do some tidying up. Mainly laundry, which I hate, but I, it has to be done. <laughs> and then I try to dedicate at least like 30 minutes to an hour to like spend time with my son, play with him. Then it's off to bedtime and then like two to three hours of work on my PhD. So definitely some things has, have suffered. My hobbies, I used to read a lot. I mean, non-PhD related, of course. <laughs> Painting, drawing, etc. So... This is something that I should work on, but I mean, at the end of the day, there's only 24 hours of, in a day. So there's only so much that one can do. <laughs> yeah. And you know that it's only for a certain amount of time as well that you are working towards this big goal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. That's good. So hopefully <laughs> I'll have some me time again soon. Yes. So thank you so much for joining us today, Rima. It's been such a pleasure to to talk with you and to hear from your perspective. And I would like to thank all our listeners for listening to today's episode. This has been episode 58, in which we interviewed Rima Kadura, who is doing her PhD uh, at the American University in Beirut in Lebanon. And uh, we'll be back next week with more on PhD life and research mechanics. Thank you so much for listening.